This is The Sidebar for the week of July 28, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Now, some of the same officers he testified against came to his home, uh, arrested him, put him in pretrial detention, uh, tortured him for 358 days, and killed him the age of 37 on November 16, 2009. Businessman and author of the book Red Notice, Bill Browder was once one of Russia's top foreign investors. But in 2005, he was kicked out of the country and labeled by President Vladimir Putin as a national security threat. This week on C-SPAN's The Sidebar, Bill Browder discusses Putin's Russia and the Magnitsky Act, which was named after his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, He was imprisoned for 11 months in horrific conditions before dying in prison. Bill Browder, what do Americans need to know to better understand Russian President Vladimir Putin? Well, I would say the first thing they need to know is that he's not a president like any other president of any other sovereign state. He's he's more like Pablo Escobar than a president. And... um, He's effectively a criminal running uh, a criminal regime. And, and in order to deal with him and to think about him, you have to understand him in that context. A criminal in what way? Well, what, what Putin set out to do when he first became president um, was to get a lot of money. And, uh, and so in his presidency and in his leadership, because he wasn't always president during this time, in the 17 years he's been in power, he's basically been running a, a b- bunch of different schemes in order to take money from from the state, from other people, et cetera. For example, um, if a big pipeline is being built um, from Russia to another country, um, the Russian gas company, the state gas company will, let's say, pay $10 billion for the pipeline, but it really only costs $1 billion to build, and the $9 billion goes to Putin and his cronies. And if you take that and you multiply it by all the different scams that they've been running, um, he's become the wealthiest man in the world. And so based on that, how is he able to stay in power? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, and the answer is that um, for, for some time, the, the price of oil was going up. And so people were getting a little bit better off than they were before. And so there was a deal for a while, which was um, it, the people said, or, or the deal he had with the people was, um, uh, you know, you can enjoy your slightly improved standard of living and just stay out of politics and stay out of my affairs. And so as the oil price was rising, that kind of worked. When it stopped rising, he had to come up with a new plan. And his new plan was, um, and this happened, let's say, about 2012, 2013, his new plan was, um, we're surrounded by enemies. There are people trying to, to do terrible things to us. We need to go to war. And so he ended up going to war in Ukraine. Um, he became a war president. He ended up going to war in Syria. And, um, and his whole message to everybody is, is we're being surrounded we're being attacked. We need to fight for Mother Russia, and you need to you need to be loyal to me in, in doing that. And and he's created a lot of nationalism on that basis. Is he firmly in control? Well, he's firmly in control of certain things. So he's he um, there's no free media. He controls all the media. Um, he there's no electorate per se because they can stuff the ballot boxes and and uh, and cheat. There's no parliament and there's no laws. And so in a certain sense. He's the dictator of the country in, 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 in a truest sense of, of a dictatorship. Having said that, 
it's 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 a it's a tenuous dictatorship because um, he has to truly control the people, and at some point, people may just decide enough is enough, and he can control individuals, but he can't control masses. In congressional testimony this week, where we covered here on the C-SPAN networks, you told one story about an oligarch who was imprisoned, facing a trial, and others saying, that could be me. Explain the story. So the story is all about a guy, the richest man in Russia back in the early 2000s. His name was Michael Hordakovsky. He was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. And Hordakovsky um, was the biggest oligarch in Russia, and Putin was fighting at the time with all of the oligarchs in Russia. He was effectively not fully in control of his of the country and his presidency. And so what he decided to do was at the end of 2003, he arrested Michael Hordakovsky off of his private jet in Siberia, took him back to Moscow, put him on trial, and he allowed the television cameras to come into the courtroom to film the richest man in Russia on trial, sitting in a cage, because that's where they put you when you're on trial. Now, if you were one of the other oligarchs, and there, was, there were 22 of these oligarchs at that point, um, and let's say you were the 17th richest oligarch, and you saw the richest oligarch sitting in a cage, what's your natural reaction going to be? You don't want to sit in that cage. And so when the trial was, when the trial ended and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, Michael Hordakovsky, the other oligarchs went to Putin and said, Vladimir, what do we have to do not to sit in a cage? And he said, it's very simple, 50%. Not 50% for the Russian government, not 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, but 50% for Vladimir Putin. And at that moment in time, uh, Putin became the richest man in the world. And at what point is enough money for Vladimir Putin? And and where is he putting this money, and what does he do with it? Well, you're approaching this question um, as a sort of rational, uh, reasonable person. Um, there's never enough money if you're Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, to be a dictator, you can't just be the dictator of the government. You have to have more money than everybody else. And there's never enough money. It's, a, it's, a, it's an obsessive, compulsive disorder. Now, Putin is very clever as well. He's a former KGB officer, and he understands that he, you can't um, have that money in your own name because the moment you have it in your own name, then it effectively becomes uh, a liability, becomes blackmail. You know, someone can blackmail you. And so what he's done is he's created these relationships with people, uh, what I call oligarch trustees, who are people who hold his money for him. And where is this money? It's in the West. It's in big Western banks. It's in hedge funds. It's in private equity funds. It's in trophy properties. It's all over the world and other in in other countries and in America and in uh, France and Switzerland and, and England, and um, and there's a lot of it out there. Which leads us to Sergei Magnitsky. Who was he? When did you first meet him? And why is he now your number one passion? Well, Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer in Moscow um, in um, in 2005. After exposing corruption in Russian companies, I was expelled from the country. And in 2007, my offices in Moscow were raided by the police who took away all of our documents. Um, I asked Sergei, my lawyer, to investigate why they had taken all of our documents. And he discovered that they took all of our documents uh, to perpetrate a massive scam where they took our documents, used them to steal our investment companies, and then used our stolen investment companies to apply for a $230 million tax refund. This was taxes that we had paid to the Russian government. These criminals had stolen from the Russian government. Your business in Russia was what? 
Well, my, I was I was running an investment management business. We were inve- we were running a mutual mutual funds invest uh, investment fund, and um, uh, and thankfully th- they weren't able to steal any of our money, but they did steal the tax money that we paid. And Sergey and I were appalled by this because we thought um, Putin couldn't have allowed them to steal two hundred and thirty million dollars of taxes that we paid from the government. And so we thought that we would be able to shut down this scam by exposing it. And Sergei gave testimony to the Russian State Investigative Committee, their version of the FBI. And uh, and we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. And then we discovered in Russia, in Putin's Russia, there are no, there are no good guys. And so what happened was that um, about uh, six weeks after Sergei testified against these police officers, these corrupt police officers, uh, some of the same officers he testified against came to his home uh, arrested him, put him in pretrial detention, uh, tortured him for 358 days, and killed him at the age of 37 on November 16, 2009. He left a wife and two children. And to answer your question, why is he my passion now? Um, because when I got the news of his of his murder, um, it was the most heartbreaking thing I've ever ever news I've ever gotten, and and it was obvious to me that that the only way I could react was to do whatever I could forever more to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And I made a vow to his memory, to his family, and to myself that I was going to do that. And for the last seven and a half years, I've been going after those people. And and we got a little bit of justice here in the United States. Um, I took this story to um, Senator Benjamin Cardin of Maryland and Senator John McCain of Arizona and I told them Sergey's story, and I said, the people who killed him, they keep all their money in the West. Can we freeze their assets and ban their visas? And they said, That's, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's a good idea. And they introduced something called the Sergey Magnitsky Act, named after Sergey Magnitsky, my lawyer, which freezes assets and bans visas of Russian human rights violators. And it went for a vote in November of 2012, um, it passed 92 to 4 in the Senate. Um, 89% of the House of Representatives passed it, and it became the law of the land on December 14, 2012, named after my murdered lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And the response from Vladimir Putin was what? It was apoplectic. Vladimir Putin was so angry. Uh, the first thing he did was he, um, uh, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans um, by American families. And I should I should point out that Americans were never able to adopt the um, uh, healthy orphans. They could only adopt the um, the ones who had illnesses that were sick. And But Americans came with open arms and open hearts and took in these children with HIV, with Down syndrome, with heart issues, with spinal bifida. They took them back to America. They nursed them. They brought them back to health. And, uh, and these children survived. And these children weren't surviving in the Russian orphanages. And effectively, what Putin did to retaliate against the Magnitsky Act um, was to sentence his orphans to death, um, which shows you how mad he was about this whole thing. Um, Why was he so mad? He was so mad because Putin, we've since learned, was a beneficiary of this $230 million. Putin got some of the money. And leading up to his arrest... Did Sergei Magnitsky have any sense that his life was about to be threatened? Sergei Magnitsky thought that the law was the law. 
and that he would the law would protect him. I mean, it's it's insane to to think that. Uh, I mean, he wasn't a principal here. He was he was a lawyer. He was just a lawyer representing me, and that they would take a lawyer hostage. Um, just seemed completely. It was outside of anyone's ability to predict, and in, in his particularly. And when he when he after he was arrested, he believed that the law would protect him as well. He never anticipated under any circumstances that that they would do what they did. And what about you? Are you worried about your own safety? Well, there, uh, Sergei Magnitsky wasn't the only one killed in this whole ordeal. Um, a number of other people have either been killed or they've tried to kill people connected to the Magnitsky case. Sergei Magnitsky's um, uh, lawyer, or the lawyer for the Sergei, for the Magnitsky family, um, who has been fighting for justice alongside me, uh, he was thrown off a fourth fourth floor balcony uh, a couple months ago. Boris Nemtsov, who was um, lobbying here in Washington and in, in Brussels at the European Parliament and in Ottawa at the Canadian Parliament, was murdered in front of the Kremlin in 2015. Uh, a guy named Alexander Perpolichny, who was a, a whistleblower from Russia who came over to England and, and provided us with documents which allowed uh, money laundering investigations to be opened in a number of countries, um, dropped dead in front of his house in the suburbs of London at the age of 44. I've been threatened on numerous occasions from coming from Russia. They've threatened to kill me. They've threatened to kidnap me. They've threatened to have me arrested. They've used, gun, used Interpol to have me arrested. They've sent extradition requests. Um, they've done, done just about everything possible. And so the answer is that I'm at great risk. How do you protect yourself? Well, the first thing is I, um, uh, I don't tell... Um, viewers on C-SPAN, what I'm doing uh, to protect myself. I, I, obviously, I take a number of, of protective measures, but I, I don't go into detail on my security arrangements. But uh, uh, for me, the most important thing is to make sure that everyone knows the story, because if you know the story, then it's obvious if anything happens to me, uh, who did it? Well, let me go back to Vladimir Putin, because you paint a rather frightening, remarkable, intimate portrait of somebody uh, who is a leader that we need to work with, and yet clearly, based on your experiences, somebody that we cannot trust. Well, there, there's there's a long history of of working uh, of, of having to work with bad people, um, but the, the big the big issue with Vladimir Putin is that we have to understand who he is. We we cannot we cannot assume that he's a um, normal, law abiding uh, person acting in the national interest of his com- country. He's not. And we have to understand that when we are dealing with him, we can deal with him, but at the same time, we can also contain him. And I don't, I don't view this situation we're in right now all that different than the situation we were in, you know, for many decades during the Cold War. It's just a different type of war now. It's a war that's based on criminal finance as opposed to uh, communist ideology. But we're dealing with somebody who needs to be contained, and we need to understand wh- what what his objectives are, which are, again, not not good. He's he's not out for our goodness here. And you write in great detail about all of this in your book that came out two years ago, Red Notice, A True Story of High Finance, Murder, and One Man's Fight for Justice. And in the book, you talk about how he's able to take control of these privately held companies. What's his tactic? How do they do that? Well, the the, the main way they do that is something called raiderstvo, which means raider in Russian. And what they do, what what the Russian regime does, what Putin does, is they open up criminal cases against, they, they find a piece of property. They say, I like that property. And then they say, who's the owner of that property? Who's the uh, majority shareholder? 
and they open up a criminal case against that person and arrest them. And, um, and then they ask them person to sign over the property. And the person either says yes or no. Most times they say no. So then they sit in jail. And while they're sitting in jail, then they go and seize all the documents from that company from the, that they want. And then they effectively do a identity theft of the company. Um, and the person is sitting in jail. And so there's nothing they can do to, to fight it while they're sitting in jail. And then they transfer the company to themselves. Um, and if the person then complains, then um, maybe they don't survive in jail. Um, and if they don't complain, um, maybe they get out of jail. But uh, there's hundreds of thousands of people in Russia, businessmen, successful businessmen, sitting in jail whose properties have been seized by the Putin regime. And as you point out, a lot of mysterious deaths in Russia over the last number of years. Well, people, a lot of people, if, if you fight the regime and you're in Russia, there's a pretty good chance you'll die. Do the people of Russia see this? Well, the, the, the people of Russia at the level um, of uh, where they want to steal your assets see it for sure. The average person, a taxi driver or a gardener or whatever, he doesn't see that. No. All, all they see is is what they see on TV, which is this guy thumping thumping his chests and talking about how, how uh, uh, he's fighting for Mother Russia. So describe Vladimir Putin to me. What words, what adjectives would you use? Well, the way, the way I know Vladimir Putin, he's he's a, a, a very small, insecure, angry man, and um, and he he's extremely worried about everything. And so, um, if anyone poses any type of threat to him whatsoever, he'll way overreact and destroy that person in whatever way that he can in order to keep them from keep himself in 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 a position of strength. Um, he's constantly um, he's insecure. He's looking at people who are slighting him. At, at any at any step of the way, um, and and probably most worrying of all is that he has he's sort of a sociopath and he has no empathy and so he can't understand um, other people's pain, and so when he's going and causing trouble, killing people, he he can't think of what it might be like for them or their families or whatever, and so it allows him to do some terribly immoral things without any without his heart beating any faster. When you say no empathy, does he not have family? We know he has a wife, although we haven't seen her that often. Does he have any children, nieces and nephews, relatives? He does. He has two two daughters. Um, if anyone ever reports on them in Russia, they get arrested. Um, so we, we don't. Uh, um, there's only like one or two pictures that are circulating around about them. But he's and, and he apparently he even has grandchildren at this point. But but um, uh, he sort of lives a life of a loner in, inside um, his. Uh, presidential compound. He doesn't have a wife anymore. Um, uh, and he's uh, just having family doesn't make you empathetic, doesn't make you, doesn't give you empathy. You have to have it as a in, inside your body. And, and he does not have that um, psychological characteristic. As you look at the relationship between the Russian president and uh, our president, Donald Trump, how would you describe that from your vantage point, from what you've seen? Well, I, I don't think at the moment there is a relationship yet. I think there's there's different intentions from different sides. I think that um, uh, from Putin's side, he would like to he has a wish list. Um, on his wish list is one getting rid of the Magnitsky Act. Um, two, he'd like to dismantle NATO. Uh, three, he'd like the European Union not to exist so they can't challenge him. And um, uh, and four, he'd like uh, everyone to, to stay out of his way in Ukraine and Syria and places like that. And um, uh, and that, that's his wish list, and he, he'd, he'd like this new president um, of America to acquiesce on all those points on his wish list. 
what does Donald Trump want? It's 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 very unclear to me what what he he wants. Um, uh, if you look at the administration he's he's created, he's put some very tough um, uh, Russian hawks in his uh, administration. The defense secretary, Mattis, um, Nikki Haley, the uh, UN ambassador, head of the CIA. These are all people that know Russia extremely well and and aren't going to let Russia get away with anything. On the other hand, he's making all these these sort of soothing noises to Putin about what a great guy he is, um, which which are very worrying to me because Putin's not a great guy. So all this talk about Russian involvement in the 2016 election doesn't surprise you? Well, um, it's, it, it's you know, the, the, the Russia was involved in the 2016 election. We know that. I mean, it's it's a matter of, of fact. Um, the only question is, um, uh, was it, was it unilateral? Was was Russia just involved because they wanted to be involved, or was there any kind of agreement? And 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 that 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 question remains outstanding and is being investigated. Let's talk a little bit about you and your company, Hermitage Capital Management. What does it do? Well, when at its at its peak, when when I was fully in business, I was the largest foreign investor in Russia. I ran an investment fund. I was investment advisor to an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund, which invested in the Russian stock market. It was highly successful. We had at our peak, four and a half billion dollars invested in the Russian stock market, um, and many of my investors made a lot of money. Um, since Sergei Magnitsky was killed, I've put aside all of my commercial activities, and now I'm a full full time uh, human rights activist, fighting for justice for Sergei and, and fighting to expose the crimes of the Putin regime. Have you been back to Russia? Um, I've not been back. However, they would like to have me back. Um, uh, three years after they killed Sergei Magnitsky. Uh, they put us both on trial. In Sergei's case, it was the first trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. And in my case, it was a trial in absentia. And so there's two empty uh, seats in the courtroom dock in the uh, cage, a full courtroom with a judge and bailiffs and defense lawyers so who we didn't appoint and prosecutors and, and cameramen and everything. And they had a full-on show trial in which they found us both guilty. I was sentenced to nine years in absentia. And so um, uh, I'm now a fugitive uh, from Russia, and they're they're trying to have me extradited back there at any point, so they can then put me in the gulag and 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 from their standpoint uh, torture me the way they did to Sergei Magnitsky. Do you feel protected by the U.S. government? Well, I um, I, I live full time in London, um, and so my main, the main government that offers me the protection is the British government. But I would assume that uh, if I lived here, the U.S. government would protect me as well. And Sergei's family, where are they now? Um, fortunately, they're living in London, um, uh, safe and sound, and um, Sergei's uh, widow helps with the, with the campaign for justice. What has this whole experience taught you? Well, it's taught me one very, very stark lesson, which was that um, uh, it was, first of all, a terrible mistake to have gone to Russia, that uh, just because these people look like us doesn't mean that they act like us, and, and the level of... of uh, brutality and and lawlessness is just so extreme there you know you can't it's 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 a place where one should avoid and i think that i guess what i've learned from that is that um you know rule of law is just so so fundamental to happiness and security and and uh, i wish i had known that earlier in life do you think that vladimir putin will maintain his power in the coming years um, it's hard for me to imagine that he will. As as time goes on, um, his brand of, of governance, which is stealing everything for himself and having everyone else live in poverty, is not a sustainable long-term position. Bill Browder, 
Thank you very much for being with us here in our C-SPAN studios. Thank you. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.